you know, it's easier for people just to hide in cities and then somebody else is producing their food and people don't realize how actually how hard it is to to produce food and, and how much time demanding. What is agroecology? Can cattle farming be regenerative? What is sustainable fish? And where can we buy real food? Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tapir. Gergelecter. Sakula Ijaya. Food. Slow Food, the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Slow Food, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the beauty and complexity of good, clean and fair food systems. I'm Valentina Gritti, I'm your host and a Slow Food Youth Network activist. On this podcast, we meet changemakers around the world who are working towards a more sustainable food system and promote a slow lifestyle. This podcast is part of a small series dedicated to the Plant in the Future Challenge, in which we take a deep dive into our food system and its challenges, get inspired to cook up plant-rich meals, learn about agroecology as a solution and get into action. In today's episode, we'll learn what agroecology is and how it applies to agriculture, to fishing and to animal farming. But stick until the end because one of our guests is going to give us also practical tips on where we can find agroecological products. To begin with, we need a general introduction on what agroecology is, and therefore I called Marina Nkunda, a young farmer and responsible person for agroecology and community empowerment at Slow Food Uganda. I asked Marina to give us a definition of agroecology based on her theoretical and practical knowledge. And she tells me that agroecology is first of all based on traditional practices rooted in the local traditions, and it also flourishes thanks to the knowledge exchange between farmers. Agriculture, it's a science, it's a, a practice, it is a, a social movement that uh, looks at the relationship between uh, plants, between animals, between humans and uh, the environment or the natural resources. Basically looks at how we can balance all this so that we don't create any impact to the environment, but at the same time we promote sustainable food systems. And of course, in promoting sustainable food systems, we get high yields. We look at how we can reconcile agriculture and the local communities, then as well as working with the natural processes so that we can have a common benefit of nature and livelihoods. Maureen, if we go and visit an agroecological farm, what would it look like compared to, for example, a conventional farm or an organic farm? One of the principles is that uh, we should have input reduction. It, uh, this means that on our farm, uh, we should have reduced dependency on purchased inputs. We should be able to use uh, the resources available on the farm. Uh, the resources that come from the plants and the resources that come from the animals. Maureen explains to me that the farm is a sort of a circular system in which animals give input for the plants to grow and they are fed with the crops. There should be no waste of inputs and outputs because everything gets back to the system. This increases the self-sufficiency of the farm. And another point is to give particular attention to the soil and make sure it's healthy before planting your crops. Because the soil is also like a human being, it needs good care, it needs to be taken care of. 
Diversification on the farm is not only useful in terms of environmental synergies, but it's also a means of empowerment for the farmer, as he is not relying on a single crop. Then another thing, our agroecological farm should have biodiversity. It should have a diversity of species which are so functional. And of course, this biodiversity should be maintained and enhanced. So there should be a positive ecological interaction or integration or complementarity. For example, we should have the animals, the crops, all these components in that these components can um, be able to support each other. For example, you, are, you have planted one uh, variety of, uh, of crop, for example, maize, and maybe you have just planted and uh, the drought has come and the maize cannot survive. It means there will be a total loss for the farmer. But if this farmer had diversified his farm or his garden, for example, he has maize, he has bananas, he has beans, cassava, it means in the case of, uh, of a climate uh, crisis, for sure not all these uh, crops can, uh, can be damaged. And this means if at least some crops can survive, it means the farmer cannot make a total loss. At least if the maize fails, at least the bananas can survive. And it means he or she will be able to benefit from the bananas. So then the farmer has animals. In case the, uh, the climate crisis happens and the crops fail, at least the animals cannot fail. The animals can uh, survive the drought. You can get water and then give them water. At least the animals can survive. So it means that the farmer can be able to gain from the animals, but not making a total loss. So diversification is an important aspect. This was Maureen Ankunda from Slow Food Uganda. The unsustainability of our food system is particularly evident in the livestock sector. Each year, the welfare of millions of animals raised for their meat, milk and eggs is often seriously compromised. Animals pay a harsh price in the current industrialized system because unfortunately factory farming often reduces animals to productional assets. To be more efficient, animals are packed into closed barns or confined to small spaces where they are living a shorter life because living in these conditions rather makes animals more prone to diseases. We can't talk about agroecology without answering these questions. Can we have livestock farming where animal welfare is at the center? And do animals have a role in sustainable farming and regenerative ecosystems? I decided to interview Mateus Borgia. Years ago, Mateus left São Paulo in Brazil to pursue his culinary career as a Michelin pastry chef in Australia. He joined restaurant Noma in Denmark and then studied in Italy at the University of Gastronomic Sciences, where he was also one of my classmates. But after 11 years of traveling, an event disrupted his plans. My grandfather had a farm already in Brazil. I never expected to come back for that. But in 2016, just before graduating, he passed away. My family, they wanted to sell the farm. And I was in Italy and then all the questions came. And that was a big start of this is what I want to do. This is what I, I really want to go back and, and try to make a difference somehow, at least in that piece of land and show the world that is, it's okay to have cattle in an agroecological system and how important animals are for, for the landscape itself. Can I ask you to give us a bit of an overview of what the traditional cattle farming looks like in Brazil? 
Yeah, so cattle farming really started uh, in the early 1900s, where we had all the Central West native forest, uh, Cerrado, and there was incentive by the government to go to these areas and try to do some agriculture. Obviously, it's a very old landscape, it's very different from Europe, so we have very sandy soils, very fragile, very sensitive, so agriculture itself was never really possible. So cattle was the, the, only, the only way to do it. So the, the Zebu cattle came to Brazil, I think 1960s, 1950s, in mass. Uh, so the, the Zebu cattle is Tauro Zebuinos, which is the one that had the hump, that are more heat resistant, the, the tropical cattle, let's say. And that's when everything started. Most cattle farming in Brazil is continuous grazing and the land is degrading in a very fast level because, as I mentioned, the landscape, the biome Cerrado is very fragile and it takes a little longer to, to, to recover. Uh, just to understand, while well, you said continuous grazing, right? The cattle is always on the same land, am I correct? Pretty much. So you have big pastures and then you stay there for a couple of weeks and then you go to somewhere else. But it's cattle is very selective. So what happens is He's going to travel, he's going to walk all the paddock in order to find the particular thing or grass he wants to eat. And then other bushes and weeds will grow and then you start compacting soil, you start having less grass, more termites. And then all that system becomes unbalanced because of that, just leaving the animal there doesn't work. The reality is quite different on Mateo's farm, Terras Caipora, located in the heart of the Brazilian Cerrado. Mateus actually calls himself a grass farmer. What I did was trying to mimic nature, like if cattle is open in Africa or like big ruminants in Africa, they're always moving and you have a predator that is moving these animals and they usually live in herds. So what I do is I constantly, twice a day or once a day, I move them to a different paddock altogether, they feel safer. And I managed to concentrate manure and urea in the same place and then I have a big, big time of resting to all that grass to recover and stimulates photosynthesis. So when I say continuous grazing is that most farmers, they just left the cattle out there and in two years all that land would be probably degraded. They had to till again, reseed it and then our soil, they are not adapted to it. Like it's, you see in Europe, um, annuals. So corn, wheat that they plant every year. Doing this in Brazil, in, the, in this sort of soil, can be very, very bad. Also for carbon that goes into the atmosphere. So working, the, the reason I really love working with animals is that you work most with perennials. So you kind of stimulate photosynthesis constantly. You're not tilling that soil, you're creating root systems. And you have the animal to just harvest that grass and stimulate even more photosynthesis. So you trap more carbon in the soil. And, and it's pretty fascinating when you, uh, when you work with animals and you, and you have the rationality of this, you can create beautiful landscapes and recover water and plant water and that extent, like an agroforestry. The potential of recovering landscape with animal management is beautiful. The good thing of Brazil is that space that we already have. Um, you don't need to deforest more areas. You don't need, actually, you need a lot less to produce what we already produce. 
So it's very inefficient at steel production in Brazil. For just by the man management I do, I can have three to four times more animals in the same space regenerating the land. And that's what people need to know how to do and, and have more areas rested to become forests again. So if we do have incentives to regenerate these lands and restart with proper management, you can feed so many people with really high quality protein in a very sustainable way, very respectful way and trapping carbon into back into the soil again, which is the most stable form of carbon is soil. And Matthias, so um, I think you, you lost me on the perennial plants. You said that like you have perennials and the more the animals eat the grass, the more the grass comes back. But like if I think of perennials, I think about trees, but you're talking about grass. Or yeah. Can you explain maybe more how it works? Yeah, so grasses, they are perennials. You don't have to see them every year in order for them to come just like trees but what happens is that grass is constantly trying to to grow seed and then it goes through senescence so kind of dies and then other, others come so the job of of the animal in that matter is to kind of harvest that grass so the root systems they very long and then they have that power to grow again And that's what I mean about perennials and, and animals harvesting that and moving to a different paddock, moving to a different part of the farm. So that grass have the power to, through photosynthesis, grow again without you having to touch the soil. And at the same time, the animals are feeding that soil with manure and urea, um, changing that biota. Uh, so it's pretty fascinating. So when I came, when I first came, was very degraded landscape, uh, a lot of bare soil. So what we do as regenerative cattle systems, we want to make sure we have full grass cover, soil cover. Having soil exposed to the sun is very, very damaging. So you kill the biota and all that carbon that has been stored for thousands of years in that soil goes back to the atmosphere. So what you want is fully grass cover And you use animals to do that. Because what we have as, as a challenge in Brazil, that being regenerative, that being organic, that being conventional, is that we have part-time rain season and part-time dry season. And what's happening with climate change, and that is very visible, is that the rain season is always concentrating in a shorter period of time. It's, it's very frustrating when we reach the dry season. Because we never know now, it's not, we're not secure when, when, on when the rain is coming back. Every year is changing, so it's very difficult to plan. But you kind of need to be aware of that and plan in advance and, and know that maybe this year is not going to have much rain. So what you do is try to basically store land in your, water in your soil. So you have three, four months that you have to do everything to keep that water there somehow. And you do that by stimulating root growth, that's why you need perennials, um, stimulating mulching, so completely grass cover and resting periods. And you know, the more you feed your soil with mulching, the more structure you change in your soil, the more water capacity to keep in that in a particular area. So you wouldn't do that without animals. And that's when it becomes very, very fascinating how animals have the power to change landscape also to the good and not only to the bad, but you kind of need to be rational about it. You can't just forget about them there and, 
pretend things are going to be okay. Mateus mentions that in Brazil, feedlots are also becoming more popular, where animals are fed grains and soy. I don't think animals, cattle, should be eating grains. They, they evolved in order to manage to transform grass fiber into very high quality protein um, just by eating grass. And I don't believe grains should be part of the system. When you got back to Brazil and you decided to take back the land of your uh, grandfather, did you feel that you were left alone or did you get any support? Was it hard? <laughs> it was, it was. So I did the crowdfunding and most of the help I had was from you guys in Europe. Um, Brazilians are very skeptical, skeptical about it. And I was for a very short period of time called crazy in the town that I met. So I'm, the farm is at Mato Grosso do Sul, central west uh, of Brazil. And suddenly people try to sell me inputs, fertilizers, um, glyphosate for, for weeds and all these things. And I said, no, you don't need these things. And I would tell them, no, <laughs> you, don't, you don't actually need these things for that. You're going to... Destroy your soil. Who, who was sending you the glyphosate? Uh, like the stores and the, and like the people that sell stuff in the cities. Science uh, create technology, but technology is mostly used for profit. And that's where the problem comes. Because they try to sell that and they make you dependent on that. And most farmers, they unfortunately don't know about it. So they suddenly after years of using inputs in their soil, in their production system, they become extremely dependent on that. And then it takes a lot longer if they want to get rid of it because all the grass is so addicted to fertilizers, then, then it's not going to grow without it. You, you kind of need to restart the whole process. So I made sure I didn't use any of it and I didn't want to. And that's why people started calling me crazy because everybody said it wasn't going to work. And it kind of did. Uh, obviously, it's it's time. Uh, I have a, it's a very small farm compared to the average sizes in Brazil, so I also didn't rely on that farm a hundred percent. So that makes also a difference. So if you have a farmer that relies on a farm to survive for profit, it's very difficult for him to make decisions without having benefits, without without having subsidies or help from the government. So these incentives in agroforestry, in agroecology, in regenerative livestock production, they're almost inexistent. So that's the reason I still work in Sao Paulo and I'm not 100% of my time in the farm because I kind of need to, I pay for that time of recover. But that's not the same case for, for other farmers. They don't have it. So I don't, I don't judge their choices. Like they've been trapped and now it's, I need to be an example of way to show these guys or these farmers that it is possible to work and produce meat with absolutely no inputs. And that's what's crazy, because all you need is sunlight, water and grass. The transition to agroecology can be hard, as it is for producers to get organically certified. But the economic viability of agroecology cannot be underestimated. According to the FAO, agroecology helps boost the livelihoods of family farmers and decreases rural poverty by reducing farmers' reliance on external inputs, subsidies and volatility of the market prices. 
Agroecology can promote increased economic resilience, provide income stability over the year and connect consumers to producers. Agroecology isn't something that is just relevant for farming in developing countries. Also in Europe, studies have shown that it can make economic sense compared to traditional farming methods. Essentially, agroecology involves farming in a way that it's more in tune with nature, and it turns out that this approach can lead to incomes that are as good as, if not better than, those from conventional farming. There are a couple of reasons for this. First, agroecology tends to add more value to the produce which means farmers can earn more from what they produce. Second, in conventional farming, the prices of farm products can be unpredictable and often low, while costs keep going up. This puts a lot of pressure on the farmers, a situation summarized as the squeeze on agriculture. Agroecology, however, can help farmers deal with these challenges better, so it's actually becoming more popular among farmers who are looking for ways to thrive in tough agricultural markets. Terra Skypora has now about 200 hectares of land, which for Brazil is quite small, where for the European standards that would be huge. 35% of the farm is native forest, then you have a bit of infrastructure, like his house for example, and the rest is grass. All I had is degraded land and I had to do something about it. So I leased the land for a neighbor farmer, so he would have his animals in my farm and I would manage them. And then slowly I managed to start buying animals, and now I have uh, about 100 cows. The goal is to reach 150, and then I kind of break even, and then it's nice. Amazing. And Mateus, do you see in the future that you will be able to be 100% at the farm, or is it also something that you would like to? Or do you think it's always nice to have like one feet in the farm one feet outside and maybe it's safer what is your plan in uh, that sense yes my plan is to go back and stay there most of the time i was there i lived there for two and a half years and, and i had to come back when i had a, my first child <laughs> life changed a lot so i didn't didn't have many choices i had to come back to sao paulo and start also working for money and then this work actually also became the investment for the farm. So the plan, yes, is to create this resilience and, and, and be at the farm 100%. I want to combine my experience in the kitchen with mm -hmm. agriculture and, and transform into something of my own. But I don't want to have to come to big cities to sell my product. I want to stay in that particular area. I want to create a market in that particular area, generate economy in that particular area to avoid big distances. Because Brazil, you know, animals to be slaughtered in Brazil, they travel two to three hours. You cannot slaughter them at the farm, or can you? Legally, no. Uh, and if I want to do it legal, that's a lot of investment. Big slaughterhouses, they control the market. That's, that's a big, big, big problem for farmers. We're always in the hands of these guys. We're always in the hands of whatever is exporting to China because at the end of the day, cattle in Brazil is still a commodity and prices just go up and down. And uh, Last year, at least 20 to 30% of livestock farmers simply gave up, couldn't keep doing it. And what they do is they lease for monocultures of soy and maize, soy eucalyptus. It's, uh, it's very sad. 
In a few years, a small slaughterhouse 30 kilometers away from Mateus' farm is likely to be active again, so his plan is to slaughter the animals there. He then wants to transform and prepare the meat himself and serve it to his clients in a restaurant directly on the farm. He wants to use the whole animals and not just the preferred cats. There's so many people you can feed with only one animal and still 30-40% of all that is wasted in all the logistics. Because if the market only wants a prime cut, which is 15-20% to 20 of the animal, you need to raise a lot more animals to feed that market. And then you have a lot leftovers for a random market that you need to find, and then you, you have spoilage, you have meat going bad, and then that's how part of all that industry is wasted and doesn't achieve, doesn't reach the, the, the public. Mateus has also some fears for his future. The changes in rain patterns is very scary. It's really scary. Like, I don't know in 10 years' time if we're going to have rain anymore. It's, it's very uncertain. And it doesn't depend only on you. It depends on the whole world moving into something more sustainable or actually caring about this. That's what scares me the most, is, is you know, making all that effort Uh, which I think we all should, in a way, the, us that believe in that, and then the Amazon is being cut down, and that obviously affect my farm and everywhere. I remember a couple of years back when there was the burns in the Amazon, all that smoke was traveling through the sky into the farm, everything was red, it was quite scary. It's, it's quite scary. The heat is also increasing um, a lot as every year is hotter so i don't know how long these these forests can last with so much heat so it's very easy to catch on fire during the dry season the farm got on fire two years ago it's scary um, because of a electric pole that fell and then fire everywhere and it's we have to consider all that and that's you know it's easier for people just to hide in cities and then somebody else is producing their food and people don't realize how actually how hard it is to to produce food and and how much time demanding but the, but at the positive side there's so many farmers here in Brazil doing um, the regenerative perspective mostly women which is very nice interesting like they are the ones uh, changing the whole landscape they are the ones moving to a different agriculture mostly women and obviously now the, the younger farmers that are coming. This was Mateus Borja, regenerative cattle farmer in Brazil. We've talked a lot about livestock, but what about fishing? Can agroecology be applied to fishing as well? I asked Didier Gascoul, researcher and professor of marine ecology at Institut Agro in Brittany, France. At the very beginning, I started with a very classical a way of uh, managing fisheries, the old way. And progressively I discovered that we really have to face a big problem with fisheries management, a problem of um, biodiversity conservation, and that we need to move forward a new way of fishing. But uh, that was not my, my point of view at the very beginning of my career. Could you tell us a bit of these uh, problems that you mentioned? So uh, how... Uh, is, for example, biodiversity in fishing threatened? The, the results of the research that we have now tell us that during the 20th centuries, the abundance of ground fish have been divided 
uh, at least by five and probably by ten, especially in developed countries such as ours. And this decrease in the abundance of fish uh, had some strong repercussion on the whole functioning of marine ecosystem. We have now some models that tell us that fishing has really deeply disrupted the functioning of marine ecosystem, especially because we are decreasing the abundance of every fish populations that, that are fished. The point is also that we had a very large impact uh, on the seabed, especially by trawlers. And I really think that fishing has destroyed one part of the productivity of marine ecosystems. The productivity of marine ecosystem is based uh, on two ways. One is uh, the phytoplankton, uh, which is the starting point of, of food chains. But the other part is really the forest of animals that we have on the seabed, uh, made of uh, invertebrates, crustaceans, worms, and uh, mollusks, and so on, which are really another part of the of the of the base of the food chain. Didier mentioned trolling. This means using a giant net with heavy weights to scoop up everything from the ocean floor. The sand that is being pulled up ends back to the floor, and the fishes that don't get through the net are being caught. This way of industrial fishing scrapes away the seafloor, taking out important species like corals and a lot of different sea animals. And, and finally, uh, fishing also had a, a very strong impact on sensitive species. I think uh, especially about marine mammals, seabirds, uh, turtles, and uh, many populations of, of uh, sharks. Really, we, we have to change now to find a new way of fishing and a new way of managing fisheries. Uh, climate change is already coming. Climate change already has some strong impact on some marine resources and, and on the functioning of marine uh, uh, ecosystems. That, that is the topic of my, of my research now. We observe the growing occurrence of situations where marine populations proliferate or, on the contrary, collapsed very quickly without warming. And the instability of marine ecosystem appears to, to, to be increasing. And that's really a very strong problem for the conservation of biodiversity, but also for, for fishers. And that, for me, the, the challenge that we, we, we want to face with, with uh, this uh, agroecology of fishing that I call pescoecology. Pescoecology relies on two key principles. The first one is that we must really minimize the impact of fishing on marine resources and, and, uh, and ecosystems. Uh, of course, fishing has an impact and will always have an impact. As humans, we, we are part of the system and we interact with it and then we impact the, the system. Uh, we are some predators in, in, in the system and we have to accept that. But at the same time, we know that we are so numerous and so powerful that we must be smart predators. Smart predators, this means that we have to mobilize all our knowledge, uh, all the innovation processes we can on the management rules. And I, I, I want to say also all the, the intelligence of fishers and stakeholders to reduce the impact of fishing. The, the, the key question is how can we fish this kilo of fish with less impact, less impact on the exploited population, but also less impact on the seabed, on sensitive species, 
on the functioning of the food web, and finally on all the components of, of the marine ecosystem. For me, pesco ecology is not only on ecology, it's also about economy and social aspect. And the second principle is that we have to maximize the social and societal utility of every kilo of fish that nature uh, provides us. The resources of the sea are common goods for humanity and their exploitation must benefit to the greatest number of people and to the, the whole society. Um, we, we can say that seafood products, uh, yes, they are part of our diet, but they are also sources of economic wealth and employment then the economic income from fishing must not be captured by the few rich amateurs, like it is in industrial fishing. It must contribute to the development of coastal territories uh, and to the balance for, for coastal society. And this is the reason why we, we must favorize small-scale fisheries everywhere we can. On one side, minimize the impact of fishing, and on the other side, maximize the social utility of, of fish product. Mm -hmm. Great. And Didier, I have a question on the first part, especially. So do we already have any models, let's say, or any advice for fishers on how we can reduce the impact? Or is it still like an open field of study and who need more research? No, no, no. We, we, we already have a lot of ideas on how to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially for me, one key question is to change the current way of managing fisheries and to calculate especially fishing quotas. We know that by increasing all the mesh size of fishing gear, we can have less impact of fishing. The point is that at the moment we are fishing almost all marine resources in the first age of their life. A lot of them at age one, and then the remaining fish at age two are already exploited very intensively, and then there are very few animals able to rush age four, five, six cod. The cod can live 15 years or mm. 20 years, but there are no more cod older than four, five years in the sea because they have all been fished before. If you decide that you change the way of fishing, that now you will let in the water all the fish of age one, two, three, four, five, maybe six in the case of cod, and only fish the older fish, it's, that will be like a, a miracle. The fish will come back in the sea. The young fish will be very useful to the functioning of marine ecosystem, to the functioning of the food web. And at the very end, for fishers, they will have the same amount of fish in the net, but there will be a small number of fish, but some large fish. If we increase the mesh size of all the nets used in the North Sea, from 100 millimeters, 100 millimeters is the wide of every mesh in the net. If we change this from 100 millimeters to 140 millimeters, it will be possible to fish as much as today while living in the sea twice as many fish as today. Do you have any very practical advice for our listeners on how they should choose the fish that they buy? Probably the first idea I want to say is that please decrease 
or maybe avoid the consumption of fish from aquaculture. Just to clarify, aquaculture means farming fish in special pools on land or in basins in open water. Very usually people think that it is ecological to not take fish in nature, but to use fish produced in artificial ecosystems. And I think exactly the opposite. If we want to rebuild our relationship with nature, we have to accept that we are predators and we have to try to be smart predators and to live in, in harmony with, with nature. If you eat some fish from aquaculture, you have to know that most of this fish, especially salmon, is fed with fish meal. Then, in fact, consuming this fish, you are increasing the problem of overfishing. In addition to the overfishing issue, Didier explains that the fish flour that is fed to fishes in aquaculture most of the time is made out of fish species exploited in countries in the global south. There we damage the local ecosystems as well as the local economies. Uh, I know very well the situation in West Africa. In West Africa, there are several hundreds of thousand tons that were before used for human consumption and that are now transformed for fish meal and for the salmon of rich countries like ours. Usually consumers want to know which species they can eat, but in fact one species can come from a population that is severely overfished or from one other population which is not overfished. Probably more importantly, you should have a look to the fishing gear. It is mandatory now to have on every fresh product the, the, the fishing gear. You will probably not be able to avoid completely fish from trawlers because they are so numerous that it is quite difficult. But please try to reduce the amount of fish coming from, from trawling in, in, in your diet and try to favorize fish coming from lines, nets, uh, hook, uh, that's more, more sustainable fish, I, I think. And maybe the last one. Uh, if you can, especially when you are on vacancy on, on the coast, please try to buy your fish, uh, the fish of the day, coming from small-scale fisheries. Maybe not for ecological reasons, maybe more importantly for social reasons. This was Didier Gascoigne. We have learned what agroecology is and different applications of agroecology. Now I guess you want to know where you can actually get agroecological foods. Let's ask Richard McCarthy, president of the World Farmers Markets Coalition and member of the board of directors of Slow Food International. Well, I mean, we know that, especially if we live in an urban setting, the farm and the farmers or the fisher, fishers seem so far away. And mostly we encounter supermarkets and supermarkets can be an avenue to find some locally produced products. Um, but of course we have to know what we're looking for. And there's usually so little space devoted to the products we are, you know, that we are, we are hunting down because they're no longer there. But sometimes supermarkets are inventive and they recognize this. Sometimes locally owned ones still hold on and preserve those, those products. But I'd say that, you know, do what the chefs do. And the world over, the chefs get up on a Saturday morning and stroll their area farmer's market to find out what's coming in season now. And sometimes it's surprising. Sometimes they learn what is 
coming in into production now and they begin to eat with what we have and cook with what we have rather than having a recipe idea of i want to make this dish and i'll go get those ingredients doesn't matter when we are where we are i just want to make that dish it's a very different approach to figure out well what's around and what can i make based on what i see there and so farmers markets are a good way to begin to reacquaint ourselves with what season we are in when to expect asparagus and what varieties of asparagus when to expect tomatoes and what varieties of tomatoes and um, that becomes an adventure um, the next step may be to actually grow some of our own food now if we have space marvelous if we don't have space well it's crazy to think that we can grow maize if we only have a tiny little you know place for potted plants um, but we can grow fresh herbs parsley cilantro basilica you know whatever it is just that intervention changes the the brightness of our food the sort of small batch small scale local production for local consumption is a very dramatic way to avoid the trap of being sucked into the kind of industrial grid that we are otherwise you know it seems unavoidable rediscover and try dishes that we used to cook in this location generations and generations ago with ingredients that are particular and peculiar to our locale this can take you on a journey and a journey of rediscovering the taste of place. Richard was born in New Orleans and it gives me a very concrete example on how food industrialization has changed the staple dish of its place and how it took action to rescue its original ingredients. The red beans and rice are actually a rather good indicator of that because it, it's questionable well why these these large you know red beans uh, like a kidney bean as I think we would say in English Well, because the city was a port and the port would uh, import and, 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 and export these beans and therefore they became part of the, uh, the diet. And the rice was grown nearby, um, so there was that local product. But we began to work with farmers uh, to actually grow red beans and to harvest them when they were fresh. And I know that in the, the farmer's markets I developed, uh, this was the first time people had eaten a fresh red bean in their entire life. And what joy and excitement it is to be able to cook so quickly this bean, rather than cooking it all day. You know, when you work with fresh versus um, dry, you, you see a real difference. Um, but it was just very exciting as we rediscover why do we eat these foods And, and what role do they play? I mean, the great thing about the world over is rice and beans feed the world. It's sort of traditional peasant food. It, it's a great protein complement and it's delicious. But it's especially delicious, I think, as you describe, when you find the actual variety of the bean. And this is where we get to the, the whole question of, of, of agroecology is many of the varietals that people treasured They treasured them because that particular variety was so ideal for making a particular dish that is iconic of a place and the sort of taste of place. 
and so the more that we connect to that taste of place, the more we get in sync with how food and culture and agriculture interrelate and and that's where i think there's this excitement that i feel around honoring the traditional food and rediscovering it but also embracing the new and 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 certainly the elevation of of plant-based food in our diets away from this kind of post-world war ii obsession with lots of protein in the center of the plate um, means that we can also invent some new foods with old ingredients. We shouldn't feel so burdened by the tradition. We can invent the future. Thanks, Richard. So first of all, I wanted to ask you if maybe you could define for us what you mean uh, with farmers markets, because for example, like where I live in, uh, in Rotterdam, uh, there are a couple of markets, but most of them, except from one, uh, they sell products that come from abroad, very, very low quality. You can buy super cheap, like for example, a bag of 10 avocados for one euro. And then like the day after, like half of them are rotten. There is a tradition of what I would describe as public markets. And, and by a public market, meaning that it's a recurring market. There are independent vendors in this recurring public space market and you as a consumer get to choose which vendor to go to and those markets are valuable historically they're valuable because they are public spaces and they're points of food unfortunately these markets these traditional markets um, have lost track of the territory and the local connection in part because the vendors are sellers they're not the farmers what we found as we careened into the 21st century was that there was a real mad desire by consumers to gain access to quality fresh food directly from farmers. And so there has been this incredible revolution to reinvent the traditional farmer's market in a very intentional way, um, very tightly managed, um, it's only farmers. There are clear rules and regulations because what in the market we do is we rebuild trust and direct connection. Do you think like buying local products from farmers market is more expensive and on average compared to going to a supermarket? When a farmers market is functioning at a high level and serving a variety of customers, and has a healthy amount of competition from producers, from farmers, meaning that the farmer's market reflects a much healthier ecosystem of agriculture and consumers, the prices are very competitive. In fact, they're cheaper than the supermarket, especially at the peak season, because we cut out the middlemen and you go direct from the farmer. And uh, when tomatoes or courgette, zucchini are in great volume, the prices start to go down because there's so much of them around. So it is kind of like a micro capitalist environment where you see supply and demand working in a very healthy way. But we are still a very early stage of reinventing farmers markets. So the markets, farmers market may not have healthy competition. There may not be enough farmers. We need to grow more farmers or we need to help farmers who are stuck in the industrial grid to begin to diversify and come back to 
the direct marketing. And this is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens week after week after week. And the transition that we are in begins to take shape. But what we have learned from the chefs who were an important part of the stakeholders that really began to lead this movement was don't just look at the price that you pay when you purchase the product. Look at the price when after three days, four days, one week, two weeks, you notice that the product you buy in the farmer's market that has touched very few hands, that has come from the region that may have been picked yesterday and sold today at the farmer's market will last so much longer. You will not have to throw away as much of it. The quality is so much better. It has so much higher nutritional density. And we as consumers can begin to shift what we eat when we eat. And there is ample evidence to say that there are certain root crops we eat in the winter that actually are good for our body to eat them during those times that we crave those foods and that we have them available. So that we begin to ride the waves of the season of, you know, no longer craving a strawberry in the winter because you know what, it doesn't taste of anything anyway. And it's much better to ride the scarcity of, oh, I don't have a strawberry except maybe in a confiture, you know, of strawberries, but I look forward to the fresh one when they come into the market and they're grown because there are a variety that are grown for flavor rather than for shipping. And I celebrate their arrival and I mourn their passing. And that maybe that is how we can recalibrate our lives to work with the seasons rather than to work against them. You have listened to Richard McCarthy. This was a very dense episode. So let me summarize the content for you. So first of all, agroecology looks at harmony between plants, animals, people, and their environment. Animal farming can also be regenerative. We don't have to blame cows for the environmental damages, but mainly how farmers manage them. And most of the farmers themselves are simply victims of a rotten food system. We should advocate to reduce overfishing in our regions, to have farmers use bigger gears to fish and let fishes repopulate our seas. If the fish you buy has a label, choose fish that has not been fished by trolling. Let's try to avoid fish coming from aquaculture and look for local food producers. Buy your products directly at the farms or look for a farmer's market near you. Eat local and seasonal as much as possible. Thanks to all our guests, Maureen Ancunda, Matteo Sesborgia, Didier Gascol and Richard McCarthy for sharing their knowledge and passion with us. If you liked this episode, I invite you to share it with your network and please send your feedback, comments and questions in our Telegram group. I just wanted to mention that if you want to dig deeper into the topic of animal welfare, you can listen to the episode Circular Pig Farming, Putting Animal Welfare at the Center with Jose Harhouse. I'll add the link to the podcast description. It's also a lot of work, but that's, yeah, that's what we do and what we love. But uh, people loved it, especially the story and seeing all the, the beans and knowing how diverse actually our world in the Netherlands is. See you next Wednesday with a new episode with some tools on how we can influence people around us. This is Valentina Gritti and you have listened to Slow Food, the podcast. Ciao!